This is, is hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell and the law that enforced and in some ways still enforces the crimes of racial segregation and discrimination in housing. Actually, that that law actually created the suburbs. This isn't only according to today's guest. In fact, he cites historians making similar arguments back in the early 1980s. There's even urban planners as far back as the mid-1950s who saw racist government policies institutionalizing structures of discrimination which were purposely and intentionally made to create whites-only suburbs. It wasn't a conspiracy. It was the law. Not that the law, especially the Supreme Court, has yet to recognize the injustice of systemic government-sponsored racism. And here's the kicker. The suburbs' history of being built on racism, with each burb standing as a stark reminder of the United States' long history of structural bigotry, that's only one, granted maybe the worst thing about the burbs, but that's only one of the many things that really makes the suburbs defy physics by both sucking and blowing at the same time. In a few minutes, we'll kick the suburbs while they're down when we speak with writer and editor Dave Dennison, who posted the Baffler Magazine article, The Shame of the Suburbs, How America Gave Up on Housing Equality. Dave is a senior editor of the Baffler. He has written and edited for the Texas Observer, Commonwealth Magazine, where he was founding editor, and the American Prospect. You can find a selected archive of Dave's writing at davedennison.net. That's with one N, davedennison.net. A transplanted native of Indiana, Dave lives near Boston and claims to be an amateur carpenter, an aspiring mason, and an above-average bowler. You can follow Dave on Twitter at Dave A. Dennison and check out Dave's substack at davedennison.net. Dot substack.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show live streaming, streaming or streaming, whichever, streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Kat Jarvin and Kat, how was your weekend? Do you have any plans between, let's just start with that. How was your weekend? Uh, my weekend was pretty good. I went to a free house music festival at Humboldt Park. Oh, really? It was, yeah, as part of Taste of Chicago, I think. They had a bunch of food and some some good house music. But I bet it was better food than you'd get at the Taste of Chicago. Oh yeah. <laughs> so and uh, do you have so we're going to be back here again in 2 weeks after today. We're not doing any shows. Or we're doing shows for the rest of this week and all of next week, but they are a special collection of interviews that we uh, have done from the past from our archives. So do you have any plans on over the next 2 weeks what you'll be doing? Um nothing major, just working. Um I don't know. I don't. I tend to plan like one day in advance. So. <laughs> what are you doing for the fourth? Oh, mm, probably nothing. <laughs> I sit out back and watch fireworks explode, or uh, in the park, or I go over to the Saddle and Cycle Club, which is this like very private club over by Montrose and Sheridan, and they have their own private fireworks show. So obviously, I'm not allowed inside. So we sit outside the gate, gate like Caddyshack style, and watch the fireworks, and it's very enjoyable. And uh, they shoot so low in the air that you actually get hit with flaming debris at times. So it's very oh my 
exciting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's very exciting. Uh, so as I uh, just mentioned, this is our last live show until Monday, July 10th, when we will return with all new shows. We're very excited as our first guest when we get back will be listener favorite historian Gerald Horn. Gerald's new book, which we will be discussing, is Revolting Capital Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. But for the rest of this week's shows and all of our shows next week, while Americans are blowing up stuff to celebrate independence from the brutal, inhumane, genocidal British monarchy, so the newly created United States could do basically the same thing the British were doing, if not worse when it comes to indigenous genocide, but the U.S. would do it somewhat democratically. For the rest of the week and during the week of the 4th of July, we will be sharing conversations we had back in the first decade of this century, all of which were aired on or around the 4th of July. We're playing these interviews from the early 2000s instead of doing all new shows because I will be having what everyone hopes will be the final surgery in my physically agonizing, emotionally harrowing, mentally challenging 16 months of my own personal healthcare hell. The surgery is outpatient unless there are any complications. The whole thing from prep to procedure to post-op should take about eight hours, at which time I can return to my home to rest and heal up. However, the recovery time is two to three weeks until I'll be fully recuperated, and I am told the first few days are pretty painful. Doing simple stuff like sitting up in a chair like I'm doing right now can cause a whole lot of hurt and is not recommended. Which all means that uh, this week, following today's guest, we will be playing back-to-back interviews that originally aired on July 7th, 2007. That's 7707. The first was on uh, the structural imbalance of political talk radio, and the second is on how Christian Reconstructionists are trying to take dominion in America, and they have powerful friends. And there's nothing quite as patriotic as pointing out that both capitalism and Christianity can be threats to democracy. Then next week, we'll share a 5th of July 2008 discussion when our guest asked this important question about voters in the United States. Just how stupid are we? We'll follow up that conversation with two interviews which originally aired on the 4th of July in 2009. The first argued how the executive branch, branch, the uh, presidency itself, in the United States also, like capitalism and Christianity, threatens democracy. The second, which which will wrap up our short break and be the final in our five flag-waving 4th of July red, white, and blue celebrations, which reveal why we are so proud to be Americans. And that will be a deep dive into America's Global empire of military bases, and that talks from 14 years ago, so you know that empire has greatly expanded by now. Or not know, because a lot of the empire is secret. That's dumb American voters, yet another threat to democracy that has gone unchecked over the last 15 years, and the global united empire of America. So following today's show, it's the structural imbalance of political talk radio, which explains why I'm still very broke. Christian Reconstructionism, stupid American voters, presidential power is a threat to democracy, and the imperial United States of America. Exactly what you will not hear anywhere else because of, that's right, and I mean really right, structural imbalance of talk radio. It's all thanks to President Clinton and the far right that supported him as they voted and he signed into law the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which happened only five and a half months before the premiere of our show. 
We'll continue that patriotic spirit when we return with our first live show back on Monday, July 10th. Again, that will be with historian Gerald Horn on his new book, Revolting Capital. And you can find all of our interviews with Gerald uh, for free at thisishell.com when you search on Gerald's last name, Horn. I believe this that's with an E at the end. I believe this will be... Uh, Gerald's sixth appearance here on This Is Hell, so you can find all of our past interviews with uh, Gerald for free online at thisishell.com. But more important than any and all of that, Kat, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is in honor of you going under the knife tomorrow, and it is, what superpower do you hope Chuck has after his surgery? What superpower do you hope I have after my surgery? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. On our Patreon page, you can leave it at our Discord, you can post it on Facebook, you can tweet it at us, or you can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by Wednesday, June 28th, when we will be announcing this week's winner. Whether you post your answer, wherever you post your answer, we will contact you immediately if you are the winner. And if you are the winner, then you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff that you can find by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Huge thanks to listener Neil C., who is very, very kind in his show of support yet again. Neil, I hope to see you at the anniversary party again this year. And if you do, I promise to buy you a beer. We got a very, very kind email from listener Andy H., who not only writes to us about his concerns for my health, but Andy also wrote to claim the pri- his prize for winning the question from hell back in April. Andy won by answering the question from hell, who would you like to see indicted and why? Andy's winning answer was... Ron DeSantis's mom, you know why. Andy writes, Hi Chuck, I was so shocked at winning the question from hell on my first try that it took me a while to write in. I'd love to have the This Is Hell coffee mug. I've always wanted to be a producer on your show, but unfortunately I live so far away. But I noticed that the local paper, the Tallahassee Democrat, allows me to share my subscription digitally with anyone I want, so I've shared it with you. Look in your spam folder for the invitation if you don't see it otherwise. I love This Is Hell and want to support it in any way that I can. I thought maybe a look at the local takes on DeSantis and the fallout from his insane policies in the coming year. I thought that might be helpful. As the anniversary of your surgery approaches, I'm reminded of your first show back when I heard for the first time in a long time your sign-off with Wesley Willis's Demon on My Butt soliloquy. I actually teared up with joy that you were back, and I wanted you to know how much I need this show and how much that benediction means to me. It's my weekly moment of realizing I'm not alone. I still get to travel for work a bit, sometimes to Chicago, so I'm hoping to drop by for office hours one day. Thanks for all you do, Andy. Andy, I completely agree with you because while I'm writing and researching the show, I'm doing it all alone in front of a computer. Sure, my girlfriend is in another room, but she's alone working in there, too. Then when I come here to the studio to do the show due to the you know, ongoing pandemic, I'm still alone here in the booth. We haven't had anybody join us here in the interview booth since the beginning of the pandemic. Yes, there's a producer on the other side of the glass in the control room, and it's great to see another human, especially people like Kat and Dan and Will. But it's just the two of us. That's it. So, Andy, thank you for making me and Kat and Dan and Will and everyone who works on the show feel like we are not alone. Thanks, Andy, and to everybody for listening. As for This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, that's really a drink and think. Andy, we hope you and everyone else 
can join us for our upcoming anniversary party on Saturday, July 22nd. But if you cannot and would like to join us for office hours instead, they return on the 5th of July, Wednesday, July 5th, and happen every Wednesday at the bar downstairs beginning around 6 in the evening. Again, we're taking a break as I heal up, and this is how office hours will return the day after the 4th. So if you are still on edge from all the explosions, drop by on the 5th of July and take the edge off, if you know what I mean. Brave to be streaming live, dumb enough, brave enough, uh, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Kat has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is not fast food, specifically not what Carl's Jr. is marketing as its hangover helper meal. Last week at takeout.com, writer Danny Palumbo posted an article where he describes his experience taste testing the meal so we don't have to, thankfully. Danny starts by writing, It should be noted that the science says to eat greasy food before you start drinking, not after. He then describes Carl Jr.'s OG hangover helper meal, which features a char-broiled all-beef patty, hash rounds, cheese, egg, and bacon, all nestled on a sesame seed bun. Danny adds, Nestled isn't exactly the word I would use to describe slopping the equivalent of a garbage plate onto a sesame bun, but sure, let's say nestled. (laughs) I love how he hates this so much. (laughs) He explains, There's also a spicy version of the hangover helper meal, which forgoes the burger and instead adds guacamole and pepper jack cheese to the egg, bacon, and hash browns. But I went with the OG hangover helper meal because the spicy sounded like it would for sure make me crap my pants. Except Danny does not use the word crap. Can you imagine what fast food guacamole tastes like? I don't know. I feel like it would have a, a strange film over it. Yeah, I think it would have the texture of a Frosty. Ooh. <laughs> That's <laughs> really gross. <laughs> Danny concludes, This is, for all intents and purposes, a breakfast burger with hash browns on it. And it's a bad one at that. Limp, chewy bacon, a sad, thin, gray, factory farm-esque patty, liquid eggs. It's the proper amount of calories, over 1,000, to conceivably put a dent into your hangover. But this will do nothing to inspire happiness or joy. Although hangovers are rooted in misery, the hangover meal is a beloved institution which spans many great foods and cuisines. Above all else, this category of recovery food should inspire happiness in the face of anguish. That makes this week's hangover cure not fast food, and especially not the Carl's Jr. hangover helper meal. Yes, a hangover cure should not give you anguish. I think no. that that's basically... <laughs> take it away. Exactly. Coming up, the suburbs are hell. Kat has some of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast, which featured a 2004 interview with the late, great Daniel Ellsberg, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will have the return of Dr. Sebastian Vupper, a historian by trade who will give us another past inside the present when Seb gives us the historical context we need to have a better understanding of what is happening right now. And Kat, what is Sebastian talking about this week? Seb looks at the history of the gay liberation and trans right movement 
and reminds the listeners that sexual identities of the past were not quite the same as they are today. And as this is our only live show this week, we will also be telling you everything happening on our Thursday, June 29th Patreon podcast, which will, or June 20, yeah, 29th, which will feature another conversation with Dan Ellsberg, this one from four years earlier in 2000. We'll also have this week in Rotten History and tell you the interviews that we will be sharing for the rest of this week. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. And if capitalism is a virus, the contagion which spread throughout suburbs in the United States was like a plague of racial capitalism, a government program of white wealth accumulation benefiting from structural racial exploitation. Sounds pretty awful, right? But here's the deal. The suburbs and their history, as well as their place in American society to this day, is worse than you thought. Okay, maybe not you, but it definitely was worse than I thought. Here to explain, writer and editor Dave Dennison posted the Baffler Magazine article, The Shame of the Suburbs, How America Gave Up on Housing Equality. Welcome to This is Hell, Dave. Thank you. Happy to be here and happy to talk to you. I I can't believe it's taken this long for us to get you on the show. You can follow Dave on Twitter at Dave A. Dennison. Again, that's with one N. And check out Dave's Substack at davedennison.substack.com. You write at the beginning, start by writing that uh, urban historian Kenneth T. Jackson began his book Crabgrass Frontier, a 1985 history of American suburbanization with three assertions, that the treatment and arrangement of the shelter reveals more about a country's people than any of the creative arts, that housing is an outward expression of the inner human nature, and that no society can be fully understood apart from the residences of its neighbors. Homeowners may recognize, Dave, that what their home reflects about themselves, to their neighbors, their community, and even passers-by. But do we recognize how much the way we house people reveals about not only us as individuals, but culture and society? Do we recognize the way our housing in general affects us? And if we don't, why not? Well, yeah, I thought uh, those were such interesting insights for him to use in opening his book. And it really struck me that particular idea that our society is revealed by how we treat our housing. Uh, And so I just used that as a jumping off point uh, and an excuse to go back and uh, examine what Kenneth Jackson uh, did in this book, which uh, appeared in 1985. Um, And a little bit of a backstory here before I uh, talk about why that struck me so much. Um, I appreciate your Chicago roots. I had also spent some time in Chicago, lived in Hyde Park for a while. And somewhere in the late 80s, I remember visiting uh, an apartment in Chicago, a brother of one of my good friends, and looking down on his coffee table and seeing this uh, interesting looking book called Crabgrass Frontier. And this person I visited was working in urban planning in Chicago. And so he kind of started speaking about how important the book is and how uh, insightful it was. Uh, And so a little bit after that, I found my way to a bookstore. Could have been Powell's bookstore in Hyde Park for all I know. Uh, Got a copy of the book um, and carried it with me all these years. Uh, uh, Never really read it uh, cover to cover. And then this uh, 
past spring, the Baffler magazine started to plan an issue of our print magazine that was going to be all about housing in America, the housing question. And uh, I thought, this is a good time to go back and, and pull that book out, Crabgrass Frontier, off my bookshelf. And I got so caught up in it, I just decided, let's uh, revisit uh, the contribution that this writer, Kenneth Jackson, made. Uh, and, and what he told us, because it's it's so crucial to understanding where we are today in housing, and 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 that opening insight of his struck me. If 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 you think about housing in America and and what that tells us about our society, you know, I think it's conventional for people to think housing has been a great success here in America. You've got. Uh, all these uh, people who have been able to buy their own home, it's a, you know usually uh, around 62% of a American, uh, Americans own their, American families own their own uh, house. It's considered, you know, after World War II, they built that up from 44% to, to into the 60s. Uh, it's considered a great success, isn't it? And that's one way of looking at it. And I think that's a conventional way. And yet I pointed out in the piece that it's also true that you look out across our landscape and what you see about our society is the extreme disparities in how we provide housing to the people in this country. And you can be in a city and New York City, for example, and, and gaze up at these super talls, as they're called, these, these apartment buildings with huge penthouses out uh, at the top looking out over the city where the Wall Street people are able to live probably part-time when they're not visiting the Hamptons. And then not too far away from there, you'll find crowded apartment buildings with high rents. Not too far away from that, you might find people uh, in a lot of cities, California especially, living in tents. And you can, you know, I imagined what, what would it be like to scan across the landscape of the United States? And you can imagine all the variety that you see. You see, uh, you see little towns with nice old houses and you see the, the, the subdivisions that were built on the outskirts. And you can go uh, farther out and, and see vast sprawling suburbs that seem to a lot of us to be soulless and uh you can see you talked to kate wagner a, a while ago about the type of developments that are full of mcmansions you know that are that are uh, overly huge uh size of, of suburban development and i remember when i worked uh, years ago at the texas observer becoming aware that along the border of the United States and Mexico, in fact, all the way from the Texas border through uh, Arizona to California, there are these settlements that are called colonias. I'm not even sure how many people who haven't been down in the Southwest are aware of this, but there are colonias along the border that are like something you would see in a, in a poor country. Uh, you know where people assemble shacks. They, they'll, they'll, they'll get cinder blocks and tin and 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 put hovels together uh, until they can make a little bit more money to turn it into a, a, a more stable 
house. These places developed without roads and sewers, running water, uh, and, 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 and you know, people buy a little lot from a developer who hasn't even put in the infrastructure. Uh, and so uh, consequently, in a huge rainstorm, these pe- these places get flooding. You know, gradually, Texas has tried to put some infrastructure there to improve these places. But, um, you know, a step above that, you see trailer parks across America. So I used that insight of, of Jackson to talk about if this is who we are uh, as a society, look at the disparity. Look at the people living in mansions and the people living in trailer parks. It's very revealing. It is very revealing. And these colonias uh, that I had never heard of before until I saw it in your writing, um, I did a little bit of research. These colonias, as reported in a 2016 article in the Journal of Planning, Education, and Research, they pop up because little has been done to address the shortage of affordable housing for low-income families in Texas. And as a result, Thousands of families find themselves struggling with many of the same burdens of self-help housing that are widespread in colonias. As many as 50% of buyers in some neighborhoods lose the property within the first two years. The buyers who remain typically buy a used and often severely dilapidated trailer and spend the next 10 to 20 years building a home themselves through self-help. Dwellings often take the form of a dilapidated camper, often improvised with connections to self-built stick frame structures or roofs, self-built and unfinished standalone homes, and abandoned dwellings whose owners have likely walked away from the investment. And if people search online and look at these images, they are very telling. Are the people of Texas, Dave, you reported down there for a long time, making the choice that this is the housing the poor deserve? And more generally, to what extent do we choose or have a voice in what the housing policies that control our communities, what those are? Well, Texas, of course, is the classic example of uh, a state where you're assumed to be on your own and uh, you are uh, expected to make it as best you can in the free enterprise system. Um, When I was there, uh, my aging mother was down there as well and had been in an apartment building. And at one point, the the rent went up and she's on a fixed income and she's thinking, I can't be living in a place where, you know, every year or two, the rent's going to go up on me. And without uh, really thinking enough about it or consulting with us, she went out and talked to a fellow uh, who sold trailers and talked her into buying a trailer. She ended up living in a trailer park in Buda, Texas, outside of Austin. And what in the time was pretty rural area. It's all built up now. But she's in this trailer park. And um, uh, I I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole in doing the research on this piece. I, I worked with our very excellent editor Jess Bergman on this, and she and I uh, started looking at what happens when you buy a trailer. And it was my impression since having uh, uh, firsthand experience with my mother, that what happens is you buy a trailer and it immediately starts to depreciate. It's like buying a car, which is the opposite of of what happens with a house in, in, in when you're in a, in a, 
upwardly mobile sort of place. You know, it's how most people build their asset wealth in this country is they buy a house, hold it for 20 years and sell it for twice as much. And you, you, you've gained an asset wealth with a trailer. There's very little chance of that happening, but Jess and I started looking at some of the, the, the recent information and the mobile home, the manufactured housing association is now putting out information that that's not true anymore, that your, your trailer can appreciate. And I think in a in a really nicely kept trailer park that might be the, the case. Uh, but even after five, you know, the the what they looked at is that it may hold its value for about five years. After five or ten years, you know, it's not going to give you the asset wealth that having bought a home. But it's but people do it because they can't afford to buy a home. It's expensive to 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 uh, buy something for even $200,000 and to get a mortgage for it. And, and they may not qualify for a mortgage. So they, they do what they can. And, um, and, and, and it was, you know, Texas is that sort of place uh, where uh, good luck to, you You know, it's not the government's job to, to improve the housing for poor people. Uh, and it's, of course, Texas has gone even more in that direction as it's slid into a completely uh, Republican controlled government over the last 20 years. And you point, you point out that some residents of these colonias start out by assembling a, a crude structure out of salvage materials and gradually work toward building a stable house with the hope that infrastructure will arrive and a hurricane or flood won't. The American dream. So there's also those who live in so many tent cities across the United States, which also continue to grow. In 1862, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote in The House of the Dead, the degree of civilization in the society can be judged by entering its prisons if applied to things like manufactured homes, colonias, and tent cities. What does How We Shelter reveal about the American dream? What does it reveal about the degree of civilization in America, the level to which we are socially and culturally developed, the level of our humanity and ability to be benevolent and show kindness to others. What does it say about what do manufactured homes, tent cities, what do they say to you about the American dream and its state today? Well, it's really revealing now how you hear the discussion of tent cities in, uh, in big cities. Uh, you know, it's something that is is disturbing to the wealthier segments. They don't want to look at these people living in tents, these homeless people, um, and so they. And this has been a big uh, issue in Austin, Texas, as well. They want the city government to do something to move these people out of sight. You know, uh, don't let them have a tent city in some visible place in the central city. Uh, they don't really care whether the city government does something to give them shelter. Just move them so we where we don't have to see them. You know, and, and there, there's this, there's this. Uh, uh, people are disturbed to see it, but they're also, I think, uh, when people are self-satisfied, quite unsympathetic with how a person comes to end up in that position. And you know, this goes way back in American history. This this lack of sympathy for the poor. Uh, I I noticed at one point in Jackson's book he he quoted. Harper's Magazine writing about uh, the crowded tenements in the cities. This was 1882. And, you know, when, when, when tenements, when immigrants were flooding into cities and li living in tenements, and uh, the Harper's writer commented, they are in some accountable, unaccountable way, terribly in love with their own wretchedness. Oh my God. What a statement to make. Wow. Yeah, and they're in love with their own wretchedness. 
and and you but you hear that you hear that now with uh with uh people people's attitudes towards homeless people in the cities you know why don't they just you know go to a homeless shelter you know or why don't they do this or or, or do that and and, and there, you know, there's such a lack of understanding. Uh, there's this notion that that there that there are people who who can't get it together. There, a lot of them are people, single mothers who lost a job, got evicted from their apartment. What else are you going to do? You got to find some place to be. It's not, you know, it's not that they want to be. Some of them, you know, who really don't want to be in a shelter for legitimate reasons, but it's not like they don't want better conditions in their life. And the get up and leave thing really bugs me, too, because it's as if our lives are that portable that, you know, I can't, for instance, if, if I'm critical of the United States and somebody says, well, if you don't like it here, why don't you leave? Well, the reason I'm not leaving is because my entire social support group, my family, all of my relatives, all of my friends, all of my connections are here in the United States. You can't just get up and walk away. And when you're homeless, you are often being supported by a local community of homeless people. And without that group of people working together, it's really difficult to survive. And a lot of people just don't recognize that. You write that the wealthy classes were drawn throughout the 1800s to bucolic settings outside the city in places like New York's Westchester and to streetcar suburbs like Brookline near Boston. This ideal was, as the historian and urban planner Lewis Mumford acidly described it, to be your own unique self, to build your unique house, in short, to withdraw like a monk and live like a prince. This was the purpose of the original creators of the suburbs. Were suburbs about the individual withdrawing from any sense of community while being a display of attaining a certain social class or wealth in, in the view of the suburbanite achieving the American dream, which they see centered on personal individual success? Was this all about the hyper individualism that we see with uh, neoliberalism, but this was happening throughout the 19th century? Yeah. And, and Jackson traces that development in the early uh years of uh, decades of development in the 1800s of suburbs it was it was wealthy people who who didn't want to be crowded into the city with the lower class and could afford to go out and get a nice piece of property in Westchester County or a place like that um and and what you do is you you get a nice house you have a big yard surrounding it and you're isolating yourself a little bit from the from the people that you otherwise would be rubbing shoulders with in a crowded city, um, and it became part of this what the, what some people called a cult of domesticity. You know, the idea that that this is the the family home where you know the nucleus of your life is the two parents and the three kids and and the a, a pet or two uh, and and a nice big yard to play in. Um, Jackson later uh, wrote something, I, I think, in the Wall Street Journal, saying that you know this wasn't, this isn't even true that 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 this is the best way for children to grow up in a in a big house in a big yard, uh, you know, miles away from the nearest public park. Uh, you know, it, it's not it, it's not proven that children don't actually like better to be in a city around other people where there are a lot of other kids around and there's a park two blocks away. Uh, but, but, the, but it, but this was the, the idea that was prevailing in the 1800s among wealthy people. Uh, and, you know, Henry Ford, uh, actually at one point expressed it succinctly saying, we shall solve the city problem 
by leaving the city. So was it because you, you quote a preacher saying in, in 1853 to an audience of young women, the foundation of our free institutions is our love as a people for our homes. So was it believed in to a degree, is it still that the foundation of what the preacher described in 1853 as our free uh, institutions, detached, private, and isolated, is the American dream? Has it always been to be with a detached family, leading your own private lives, isolated and by yourselves? Do you think that's what the American dream, when it comes to wealth accumulation, was all about? Well, that's how it came to be defined. I mean, that is what we mean when we talk about the American dream is that you're going to go get your own little piece of property and your own little house and take care of it. And and um, it also was partly cultural um, and, and, and partly uh, uh, driven by this particular style of development. When you think about the way so many suburbs and a lot of them, I, I think of the classic sprawling suburbs uh, in the Chicago area in Chicagoland, uh, you know, the, the developments uh, put people farther away from the city, but also farther away from any kind of village center. You know, they're, 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 they're taking houses and putting them in these areas where there's nothing but little windy streets and and uh other homes that look like yours uh and and if you want to go anywhere to the if you want to go to a town center well actually you end up going to the shopping mall but but you you jump in your car and you you drive somewhere you know often you would have to drive somewhere just to get to a park um and and so that's partly how the American dream developed because of uh, the the um, style of uh, that that were that, that became common among the limited imagination of of real estate developers. Uh, there were associate one sociologist said that um, that property values are where culture meets economics. So it's it's partly culture. Um, and, and then the, the, whether your, um, house then appreciates has a lot to do with whether it's culturally and economically thought to be a desirable area. We are speaking with writer, writer and editor, Dave Dennison, who posted the Baffler magazine article, the shame of the suburbs, how America gave up on housing equality. You can follow Dave on Twitter at Dave A. Dennison. That's with one N. Check out Dave's Substack at davedennison.substack.com. You write, it wasn't just that people went to the suburbs to find a better life. It was that white people did, enabled by an array of helpful government policies. Did this, I mean, this is going to be hard for you to probably answer, but do you think this accurately reflected the demands of white people in the United States at the time? Were white people who predominantly worked in cities, making a living off the city's infrastructure, demanding a system of new and segregated housing built outside of cities with a quick and easy way to still get to their jobs and places of work, including factories that would remain in cities? Were the public and private sectors accurately reflecting the demands of post-war white America, or were they imposing the segregation agenda upon the public for their own personal gain, whether it be financial 
or political or both? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, and that is a difficult question to answer. Uh, people get lured by economic incentives. And if you're able to um, buy with a convenient mortgage uh, a house in a suburb that's close enough to the city where you can commute, and there's an economic incentive to do that because your monthly mortgage payment is actually going to be cheaper than the rent you're paying in an apartment. Yeah, there's a there's an incentive to to do that, and and that's and this is how things uh, began to unfold in the post-war era in the United States. Um, but your question makes me think of some uh, of, of something that I was asked after this article came out. You know, I, I, I didn't work it into the piece in The Baffler, but I, I mentioned it in a Substack newsletter that I wrote afterwards that um, one of the telling examples in post-war suburban development, of course, is Levittown in Long Island, New York, where the Levitt and Sons bought uh, many acres of undeveloped land around Hempstead and uh, originally they were going to call it Island Trees and then it uh, soon became known as Levittown and they had developed a system to you know like an assembly line process of building houses at some point um, you know when they were really cranking they were building 30 houses a day in this development ultimately uh, the, the Levittown ended up with about 80 2,000 residents living there. By 1960, Jackson tells us in Crabgrass Frontier, 82,000 residents, zero black families in Levittown. They made a specific decision that this is going to be a place where we can't have racial integration. It's not going to work with racial integration. And Levitt himself, Abraham Levitt himself said, look, we can solve a housing problem or we can try to solve a racial problem, but we cannot combine the two. And a reader asked me after that, and this is a, a liberal reader friend of mine said, do you think Levitt was right? Do you think he was right that you can't combine, you can't solve the housing problem and the integration problem? I, and how do we know? We, we, we didn't try it. Uh, I, one of the reactions I had to my friend was, you know, a lot of what was happening with Levittown was that they were building this housing, affordable housing for veterans who had been in World War II and were, were coming now to, to resume their lives. And, and they were trying to make affordable housing that it was especially uh, um, accessible for, for veterans to move into and raise a family. A lot of these veterans were in the military, I, presumably side by side with with uh, uh, white folks with black folks, maybe they were more inclined. Maybe they maybe they wouldn't have been freaked out by integration. But you know, this was the 1950s. Integration was just beginning to happen. We you know, 1954 was Brown versus Board of Education, where the ruling was that schools can't be segregated. So we were not maybe far along. And I don't know whether Levitt was right, <laughs> but I know he didn't 
make any effort to to find out either. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not. Uh, you cite the historian Jackson again uh, in Crabgrass Frontier, writing of the Great Depression's impact on the housing market. In the spring of 1933, when fully half of all home mortgages in the United States were technically in default, and when foreclosures reached the astronomical rate of more than a thousand a day, the home financing system was drifting toward complete collapse. So was a private for-profit housing sector proving to be unsustainable during times of crisis and vulnerable to forces that could not control or practices that led to profits but were, again, unsustainable? Was the problem the housing sector was private, or is that an oversimplification? Uh, the, the the housing market was about to collapse. The whole housing in in the depression. You know, people lose their jobs. They 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 can't make their payments. Their houses are getting foreclosed upon. The market was in, in collapse. And, and this is when big government has to step in and figure out what to do. And luckily, we had uh, a, a Franklin Roosevelt who was willing to to bring government power into it. What they did was was huge. The the, the federal government at that point really invented what we now know as the the, the mortgage uh, business in America. Before the Depression, I didn't realize this till I really thought about it in, in, in what Jackson presented in the book. But before in the before the Depression, there wasn't the, the type of 20, 30 year mortgage available that we're uh, used to now. You you had to either be a wealthy person who could buy your house and property outright, or you would get a, a loan from a, usually at that point, a, a building and loan association, savings and loans, uh, that was usually for about five years. And for five years, you would pay the interest on the loan. And then at, at the end of that, it would come due, you'd have to pay the lump sum. And I mean, who can do that? So uh, unless you really have prospered, you could pay it off. But then what people did was they 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 would renew it, and then they'd just keep paying interest for another five years. Eventually, you were supposed to you were supposed to pay the lump sum, and then the depression hit. Nobody can pay the lump sum. So the the 1934 Congress passed uh, the law that created the Federal Housing Administration, and the Federal Housing Administration uh, decides we can insure these people's mortgages uh, so that we would make it easier for banks to lend to people. And, and they don't have to be five-year mortgages. Why not make them 20 or 30 years? Give people a chance to pay off the principal and the, and the interest over a long period of time. There's nothing wrong with that. And banks b- began to adjust to that. And the whole idea of Federal Housing Administration FHA insurance was to create the ability of people to get mortgages, but also to protect the bankers from default because the banks can now make a mortgage loan. And if the person loses their job and can't pay it off and, and, and the, the bank forecloses, uh, the, 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 uh, the bank doesn't lose money. They're insured against default. Uh, and, and, and this was the beginning of, of the modern um, housing market where you know government becomes very intertwined with the 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 uh, private sector um, uh, in a way that ultimately did not become controversial because it really started building up home ownership across America. And but, 
Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned the, yeah. the homeowner loan, uh, loan corporation uh, created detailed color-coded maps, these uh, residential security maps. So there are other strings attached to this whole process, correct? Yeah, and that's the thing that, that, that really makes Jackson's book important because he was the first scholar to really put this whole story in context. And he went into the archives and started studying these residential security maps and, and figuring out how they worked. And, and there it was in the records. You know, we used an illustration that in the magazine to go with this article that I think you look at it and you think, what the hell is going on here? With It, it shows a green bar called first, a blue bar second, a yellow bar third, and a red bar is fourth. That is that is the beginning of redlining. That's that's the that's the federal government working with uh, an idea about assessment of property uh, that has to do with risk. And the green and the they would rate every neighborhood in in uh, across the country uh, and they would rate it green and blue if it was considered to be a safe investment. Uh, yellow or red if it was not considered safe. And what was the reason that it would be re related red? Because it was it was seen to be risky as a as a place to make a loan because there was uh, a, a, a too much proximity of whites and blacks. That that this whole idea developed uh, in the 1930s. It actually comes out of the 20s. Uh, it, it it was it was uh, real estate people in the twenties beginning to understand or, or think they understood what uh, caused neighborhoods to go up and what caused them to go down. Actually, it was a Chicago guy, a fellow named Frederick Babcock, who was a real estate agent in Chicago in the nineteen twenties, who started developing these theories of how you assess properties. And the and the whole thing behind the theory was you can't mix. You can't hit you. You need to have homogenous neighborhoods for them to prosper. And, and you can't have uh, uh, too many white people and black people and immigrants mixed in together because it's going to cause everything to go downhill and ruin your property values. You know, ultimately, it's a it's a it's a theory shot through with with racism, of course. Uh, but it was embraced by the, the federal government, uh, who which. Uh, you know, it, it took in this particular idea of 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 what makes for um, rational assessing, and as Jackson says, that's one way to look at it. A less favorable judgment would be that the homeowners loan corporation initiated the practice of redlining, which then banks, of course, embraced. You also write that, I mean, you explain how people knew about the effects of all of this well before Jackson wrote in the 1980s. You point out how Jackson notes that Columbia professor and urban planner Charles Abrams pointed a strong accusatory finger at FHA practices in 1955. Here's Abrams writing again in 1955, only 14 years after the FDR policies were implemented and in the midst of the suburb boom and what was called urban renewal. Abrams states, from its inception, FHA set itself up as the protector of the all-white neighborhood. It sent its agents into the field to keep Negroes and other minorities from buying houses in white neighborhoods. You had community leaders in the civil rights movement built on such analysis as they fought against housing discrimination. Was this practice of white supremacy well known by the public, something that was openly tolerated even 
expected and supported? Was this level of institutional racism that white America wanted? Or again, was this forced on them? Well, yeah, it was uh, understood by people who chose to pay attention in the 50s. And by the time the 1960s came around, the civil rights movement dug into this. And of course, if you're a black person in America, you already know that this is happening. You already know you tried to get a mortgage and 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 were, you were denied. Uh, you didn't have a chance to move out of the city because you didn't have the financing. So civil rights movement began to build on this uh, understanding. It, and it was well known uh, in the civil rights community through the 60s. And it's what led in 1968 to the passage of the Fair Housing Act. Uh, the Johnson administration was aware as well. And the, the Johnson administration pushed for civil rights. Congress passed uh, laws uh, in 1968, federal housing, the uh, F Fair Housing Act. And shortly, a few months after that, uh, the law that uh, uh, created uh, the idea that the housing and urban development agency needed to create a lot of, a lot more public housing to meet the needs of this country. Um, and so by the time Kenneth Jackson is researching this and he's going around the country in the 1970s making speeches about this, and that's what turned into his book, uh, he said there was a there was an enormous literature at that point that was documenting um, the connection uh, of, of redlining and, and urban disinvestment. Uh, and, 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 you know, he did the service of really pulling it all together and putting it in context. Many other books since then have have contributed to this literature. And, uh, you know, it's it's the question of did people really want this? It's a it's a two pronged question because a lot of white families. Yeah, they wanted it. They It was working for them. They're going to go off and, and be able to finance a house that's going to grow in value. Uh, and, and if they're if they're people that don't want to be around uh, diversity, they can be in an all-white suburb. There are plenty of them to choose from. And but on the other hand, did African Americans want this? As uh, obviously not. And, and you know, after the 1960s civil rights movement and through the 70s and and into the 80s, there did become some uh, opening up of the uh, of the mortgage market so that more blacks have been able to move to suburbs, especially if you think about uh, some of the suburbs around Washington, D.C. Um, but the other side of that story, and I didn't get to this in the piece because I, I was doing a historical piece, but boy, I tell you what, it, uh, if you want to get the, the closing chapter to this story, uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor uh, in in uh, 2019, came out with a book called Race for Profit, in which she then documents, okay, what happened after these civil rights laws were passed and discrimination and redlining were were ended, uh, so now they're illegal. What happened? Did it did it did it make a change so that now we have equality? No, because she she documents the way the real estate agent the real estate uh, business. Um, continued to find ways to to discriminate. She she said, you know, we moved toward inclusion and it turned out to be predatory inclusion. That's the that's the word she used, predatory inclusion, in that, you know, now you would get uh, maybe some single mothers who don't have a whole lot of money 
uh, were able to get a, a FHA insured loan, and then they would buy a piece of property that some sharpster was trying to sell them, and it would be full of problems, and then they couldn't afford to make the repairs, and you know they would end up getting foreclosed. A lot of a lot of times, you would buy a house and get end up getting foreclosed on, and you're worse than you were when you were in your apartment. Um, so uh, the, how, how this all played out is it's not a happy ending. It's not a happy ending at all. And uh, people can hear our interview. Listeners can hear our interview with Kianga Yamada Taylor on that book from 2019 by going to our website, thisishell.com, searching on her last name, Taylor. And uh, you can find our interviews with Kianga right there for free. So uh, you write that as legal scholar Richard Rothstein recounts in his 2017 book, The Color of Law, Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, Justice Potter Stewart, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1958 to 1981, wrote in a remarkably uninformed opinion that whatever racial segregation existed in Detroit, in this one case about Detroit where civil rights activists had brought a suit against the city, had come about because of, quote, unknown and perhaps unknowable factors such as immigration, birth rates, economic changes, or cumulative acts of private racial fears. So was this an attempt to not recognize the causes in order to avoid providing any solutions to give legal cover for allowing government-enforced racial segregation to continue? And if so, what does it say about that concept of justice in the 1970s when it was clear that by the evidence that this was definitely government-driven racism. So what does it say about justice in the 1970s when you can have an associate justice of the Supreme Court be in complete denialism about it? Yeah, that's that's willful blindness, and it's what you see so much now on the right wing that that we shouldn't even be talking about this. If DeSantis finds out we're discussing systemic Racism, you know, if you're based in Florida, he's probably going to want to shut you down. We can't be talking about this. This is what they don't want taught in the schools. And the Supreme Court uh, now is blind to the, you know, here, here Jackson said there's this enormous literature documenting redlining and and, and urban disinvestment, and and the, the court turns a blind eye. It's funny that when you think about uh, one of the things that Taylor pointed out in her book was, you know, how different the Supreme Court was in the 1960s when it wasn't controlled by a conservative majority. There was a major ruling in 1968, Jones versus Mayer. And and part of that ruling by the Supreme Court said that when racial discrimination herds people into ghettos and makes their ability to buy property turn on the color of their skin, then it's a relic of slavery. Uh, that's the Supreme Court in 1968. We don't have a Supreme Court that can recognize that anymore. Uh, and, and much of American politics is trying to say, you know, that it's supposedly woke to discuss this. In, in other words, it's it, it's you're you, you can't educate yourself to our to a central part of our history. Do you think that this kind of de- denialism is sustainable or do you think its failure is inevitable? I would like to think, but, you know, it, it's. It's a lot of that has to do with our education system. Uh, if if you don't learn this, if you can't learn this history in schools anymore, I guess you know maybe it'll it'll be banned from a lot of uh, high school curriculum. You know, you would hope that if, at least in college they can continue to 
to talk uh, honestly about our racial history, but then all the people that don't go to college <laughs> miss out on that. Uh, and, and and a lot of times I, I have to say that whites don't want to hear it anyway. It's, it's like, you know, that's that's old history. I didn't, that's not my, I didn't do that. It's not my responsibility. There's, there is a willful blindness in, in American politics right now that is that unfortunately is being encouraged by political leaders that that uh, this this isn't relevant and of course it is relevant because it has so much to do with who ends up uh, prosperous and who does not I you know I want to throw one more thing out here which I think is is just mind-boggling that I put in the end of my piece uh, about the, the the results of this type of discrimination in asset wealth um, because it's led to a huge wealth gap between black families and white families and and this is from a 2020 Brookings Institute report. That's a moderate think tank. Of the 30 trillion in total real estate assets in 1920, white households held 78% of those assets compared to 5% held by black households. That's a stunning statistic. Especially when black households, I believe, make up about 16% of the U.S. population. So it's a pretty stunning number. Uh, so the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has led to increased isolation. So, Dave, will and are crises exasper exacerbating the desire to be detached, private, isolated, even further driving inequality in housing as we see more crises as long as we are so dependent on the private sector when it comes to housing will that inequality continue to grow i i think so under current uh leadership in this country uh if you if you can't accept uh something that was that was uh, assumed and was central to the new deal era that the federal government does have a role in shaping our housing market. There, there are tons of things that the federal government could be doing uh, uh, with, with the vast budget that we have to deal with some of this. But, um, but as long as the, the politics of this country continue to be dominated by conservatives who think that it's all about the free market, you know, the attitude is... Uh, you are on your own and do the best you can. And if you end up in a trailer, that's uh, that's your responsibility to work your way up. Uh, and it's not that, as I point out in the end, it's not the case in in a lot of different countries where it's just assumed that the 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 private sector is not really the only way to provide decent housing, that government can step in and provide what, what people refer to as social housing. You know, decent developments uh, mixed with mixed in race and class. It can be done. It's been proven around uh, in other places that it can be done, but but you have to have the politics and, 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 and long-term, uh, I guess, a movement. And in, in the civil rights movement in the 60s pressed, pressed for that. And the Johnson administration responded, uh, at least notionally. Uh, and then, of course, it, uh, what they tried to do got dismantled by Nixon and then later Reagan. 
We have been speaking with writer and editor Dave Dennison, who posted the Baffler Magazine article, The Shame of the Suburbs, How America Gave Up on Housing Equality. You can follow Dave on Twitter at Dave A. Dennison. That's with one N. Check out Dave's Substack at davedennison.substack.com. One last question for you, Dave, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise it's the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, it would be possible for one of the wealthiest nations on earth to divert a fraction of the amount it spends on advanced weaponry to make sure people weren't shunted into tent cities. But judging by our history, that's not who we are. So our question from hell for you is, if that's not who, sure if, if that's not who we are, spending less on war in order to put everyone in an adequate home in areas that are not segregated without a housing policy driven by racism, if that's not who we are, Dave, then who are we? Well, right now we are a divided society uh, with vast disparities in wealth, vast inequality. And there are too many people that seem to like it that way. I had, for some reason, I had a feeling while you're answering it that you were going to say as your final words, and some people like it this way. So I really appreciate, Dave, you being on the show with us. I'm glad that we finally got to have you on the air with us. We had so many people from the Baffler on the show in the past. Thank you so much for being on, and uh, enjoy your summer. Thank you, and thank you for your avid readership of the Baffler magazine. All right, take care. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because there's no way in hell you're going to hear someone talk for nearly an hour about the structural racism that created the government or the suburbs and maintains them to this day in the establishment media and the government that supports them. Show your appreciation for This Is Hell providing nearly 27 years of content that you could not and cannot get anywhere else giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you won't hear elsewhere, and providing that content to you absolutely free since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every every Thursday morning morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. You can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by, this, by of course, going to thisishell.com and clicking on support as well. But if you do become a Patreon patron on our most recent pa- Thursday, June 22nd Patreon podcast, the New York Times kindly provided a front-page analysis in the previous Sunday's edition on the failures of globalization. The problem is the they failed to identify the real failures of globalization, instead blaming the collapse of globalization on who the Times seems to blame for everything and has for a very long time and that's them damn Ruskies. In fact, the Times argues globalization from the outset never had any critics and they don't quote any in the piece. They only quote critics who are or who were firm believers in globalization but have now changed their mind. Yep, the only critics the Times cites of globalization are those who were wrong on globalization and not one word from the hundreds if not thousands of people who have been on our show and were always correct and always critical of globalization for the real reasons it has failed humanity and not the reasons the Times gives like blaming the whole thing on freaking Russia and the pandemic 
also on Patreon. We were very fortunate to have the late, great Daniel Ellsberg on the show. And not once, but twice. So last week, we played our 2004 interview with Daniel when he was on to talk about his book, Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. But the only way you can hear that talk with Daniel Ellsberg, who I called Dan throughout the entire interview for some unknown reason. I don't know anybody else who actually called him Dan, I don't think. And how the New York Times has gone from undoing the cover-up of the Vietnam War by releasing the Pentagon Papers to covering up the real failures of globalization. The only way you can hear all of that is by showing your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which goes live every Thursday morning at 10 Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word. Gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Check out all the perks for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell. Cat, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what superpower do you hope Chuck has after his surgery? Sweet. Um, and on Patreon, we've got about 12 responses. Sweet. Uh, let's see. Brenna H. says, I've been minding my own business about Chuck's situation and the treatment he's undergoing, but this question really has me wondering what the heck the surgeon is planning to do to him. <laughs> uh, put my intestine back behind my stomach muscles. Is that disgusting? Uh. <laughs> That's exactly what they're going to be doing. My intestine is not behind stomach muscles. They're going to be putting it back where it belongs and then putting something in there so it doesn't happen again. How do you feel now, Brenna H? <laughs> What's the next one? Um, Jeff Dorchin responds, laying golden eggs. Lots and lots of solid 100% gold eggs, which he will slice up and give to his friends, family, and to the needy. I don't want to lay eggs. That sounds <laughs> uh, very painful. Yeah, ouch. <laughs> Chris D says, able to withstand over 380 atmospheres of pressure and thrive under it. Oh, my God. How many jokes are we going to get about the Titan submersible imploding? <laughs> <I don't> <laughs> it's really going to be disturbing. I think so, too. Um, Felipe C. says, the ability to speak to fish. So next time a rich, a rich people excursion is lost under the sea, he can bribe the company. Wow. <laughs> they're, oh my God. they're just going to keep coming. They are. They are. Yeah. Uh. Josh L. says, diplomatic immunity. Oh, okay. That'd be good. That's nice. Old Grouch responds, he will have the truth belt of Wonder Woman and will be able to get any lying right ring SOB, right, probably white, right wing SOB to admit to their fundamental true selves. That's worth living for, hey? And uh, the uh, rope could be used as a truss to keep my intestine behind my stomach wall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, any more on Patreon? Uh, yeah, there's uh, like about five okay. more. Go through them real quick. Sure. Uh, Laddie S. says, since like me and Dorchin, he was dosed with PBB-laced milk in 1973, he already has one superpower. He is totally fire retardant. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is true. I love drinking that milk. It was so delicious. <laughs> uh, Bruce S. says, the power of sophistry. <laughs> Sweet. Namely, in order to divine greatness out of our current mediocre crop of world leaders. Oh. All right. Any more? Essential rights, the magic to morph to many mighty Chuck Rangers or reassemble ad hoc. <laughs> okay, sure. Ad hoc. 
Addy responds, the ability to warm up beverages such as coffee and tea using only his mind. <laughs> That's handy. These are pretty good today. Yeah, those are. Um, Aristides Cube says, the power of love. Chuck will be able to sing the perfect cover of Huey Lewis's Power of Love in oh. the karaoke. Is that a superpower? It's a mediocre yeah, power at best. Medium. I don't know. <laughs> Lukewarm. Yeah. And that, that's all for Patreon. All right. We'll get some more of your answers uh, after Sebastian Vopper and the past inside the present. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter. You can post it on our Discord. You can post it at Patreon. Uh, whatever you want to email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by what the end of wednesday's show because that's when we will be announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin and his weekly moment of truth cat what was the uh moment of truth that jeff decided to have us play this week while we're doing a best of week Jeff has chosen to share the July 6th, 2019 moment of truth, Astrocrats. Back two presidential elections ago, Jeff shared some warnings about Marion Williamson, which now bear repeating and may be applying to RFK. Sweet. I also, did you see the uh, video of RFK pumping iron this weekend? No, no, I missed that. It's disturbing because the whole thing is a pro-RFK thing. Like, oh, look how jacked he is. He is going to be the most jacked presidential candidate ever. And then he's like weightlifting he's on a bench and he's lifting weights but there's only one disc on each end it looks like he's maybe weighing you know uh, lifting 40 pounds he's struggling horribly and he is jacked i mean like steroids jacked it looks really creepy so he might be anti-vax but there's one thing he's not anti-shooting into his body <laughs> we will have more of your answers to this week's question from later this uh, on today's show coming up the past inside the present with historian sebastian vupper cat will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell there will be this week in rotten history we'll also tell you which interviews we will be playing on the rest of this week's show the future ain't what it used to be and neither is our past this is hell take it away sebastian The past inside the present. As I like to remind everyone again and again, it is Pride Month still. And after the involuntary break we took here in hell with looking at the past inside the present, I wanted to at least do one segment on the history of LGBTQ liberation in America before Pride Month is actually over. Uh, We still have some ground to cover in terms of the history of Hawaii. Uh, We'll get back there. We're just shelving that for now. Um, This week, I want to instead talk about this history of uh, the gay liberation movement, which encompassed more interest groups and would eventually evolve into the larger LGBTQ movement at large. First of all, I need to reiterate, though, that especially when it comes to the history of sexuality, we need to be extremely aware of the trappings of presentism. Due to how the understanding and views on sexuality change over time, it is very, very easy to project our current morals and understandings of sexuality, sexual practices, sexual identities, and sexual orientations back upon the people in the past. 
people in the past did not perceive of their own sexuality and that of their friends and compatriots in the same ways that we do today. There were maybe similarities, but generally the people in the past did not understand things in the way that we do today. And that does not make them lesser, and that does not mean that people in the past somehow misunderstood things. I mean, some people did in ways that mirror the ways that people today misunderstand sexuality and orientation and identity, but the ways in which LGBTQ people understand themselves today is different today than it was in the past. And there is no value judgment inherent here. That is something I find very important to stress when talking about historical sexualities. Think about it this way. In the 17th century, wearing elaborate wigs, makeup, and high-heeled shoes was understood as the pinnacle of manliness in some circles in Europe. And this manliness was not coded queer or gay. This was what peak heterosexual men looked like. That understanding of what male heterosexual ideal uh, that that understanding of, of what the male heterosexual ideal was changed over time, as all things do. And what is regarded as the peak of male heterosexual affect today would be entirely foreign to these high-heeled fops, which is what they were called, they were called fops, of the Enlightenment era. Similar dynamics inform understandings of homosexuality over time. In this regard, I again return back to the really remarkable book Gay New York by George Chauncey that talks about the same-sex-attracted subculture of New York City at the turn of the century and how very different these men's understanding of their sexuality was from what we today understand as gay as homosexual. American society at the turn of the 20th century was by far not as homophobic as we might imagine it either. I mentioned that more recent pasts overshadow deeper pasts, and that largely is what happened here, because we in the present moment are by and large more accepting of non-heteronormative identities and lifestyles than people were in the 1950s. We assume that us having overcome this more regressive past must mean that the past had always been just as regressive, and that is by and large simply not true. The era after World War II was a time of extraordinarily strict conformism in the United States. This is the time of Senator Joseph McCarthy of the Red Scare and of the early Cold War. What happened here was that a very rigid understanding of societal norms developed. Individuals who deviated from those norms quickly attracted suspicions of being subversive, and of being possibly communists or communist sympathizers. A lesser-known scare that coincided and overlapped with the Red Scare was the so-called Lavender Scare. The war had created an image of the ideal man that was fundamentally incompatible with homosexuality. Same-sex attraction was seen as a perversion to the point that the American Psychiatric Association branded homosexuality as a mental disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, the DSM, uh, the, the, the first in the first edition of this of this uh, manual published in 1952. People who were officially seen as mentally ill could not be allowed to serve in the military, for example. And things got worse when President Eisenhower then signed Executive Order 10450 in 1953. Uh, this executive order outlawed the employment of homosexuals in any function with the federal government, and that included the military. 
thousands of homosexual men and women and those suspected of homosexuality were dragged in, in front of inquiries and if found to be indeed homosexual or sufficiently suspicious uh, of, of homosexuality, uh, they were expelled from their jobs. The process also then forcibly outed them to society, to a society that saw them as mentally sick and deranged. The thought was that homosexuals must not work in the federal government since being homosexual would open them up to possible blackmail. Also, their sexual deviancy would, would make them more likely to be deviant in other areas of their lives. Homosexuals, the most commonly accepted belief was, would be more susceptible to the lures of communism. At the same time, in 1952, several events took place that put transgender individuals firmly into the public consciousness. Christine Jorgensen became an overnight celebrity when the New York Daily News outed her for having undergone sex reassignment surgery. Jorgensen had been assigned male at birth, and after hearing about the possibility of undergoing medical procedures to correct the, in her own words, mistake nature made, uh, she traveled to Denmark, where she underwent a series of surgeries and hormone replacement therapy. In the same year, Virginia Pierce, along with a small group of other transgender people, founded the journal Transvestia, the Journal of the American Society for Equality in Dress. As the title of the first transgender rights journal hints at, the understanding at the time of transgender identity was not quite yet developed in the same ways that we understand it today. Many people, including many transgender people use transvestite, crossdresser, and other terms interchangeably with transgender and transsexual. And one of the difficulties of the early gay liberation movement was that being outed or coming out bore significant dangers at the time, in the 1950s and 1960s. But it was also difficult for non-heterosexual people to know who else out there was in their camp, both in terms of allyship and also just in terms of dating. Uh, this did not only make partners uh, finding partners difficult, but it made organizing for collective LGBT, LGBTQ rights almost impossible. What helped was the slow development of some urban neighborhoods around the country, especially in New York, in Los Angeles, and San Francisco, where non-conforming people created insular communities. The early gay rights movement also loudly and proudly said all cops are bastards, since many protests of the time happened in reaction to police harassment. Both in Los Angeles and San Francisco, transgender people, gays and lesbians engaged in violent reactions brought on by long-standing harassment by local police. In 1959, the Cooper's Donuts riot in uh, Los Angeles saw a crowd of LGBTQ people throwing everything they could grab, uh, baked goods, coffee cups, etc., etc., at uh, LAPD officers who tried to arrest them. A similar event happened in 1966 at the Compton's Cafeteria riot uh, against the San Francisco Police Department. And then in 1969, the Stonewall riots also prominently featured transgender women, such as the legendary Marsha Blackburn, who is said to have thrown the first brick at the NYPD. Blackburn went on to later found the group Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR. Again, the terminology we use today for trans people had not been codified in the same ways, and Blackburn did not quite understand herself in the same ways that trans women do today. There is, however, a straight line from the earlier trans people, such as Jorgensen and Blackburn, to how these issues are largely understood today.
The social and cultural revolutions that began in the late 60s allowed for LGBTQ people to find each other, to come together, to organize, and to fight for their right to exist in society. And from that coming together and from the formation of open communities, from the communication between people evolved the understanding of LGBTQ identities that we have today. And this development, too, was in many ways intersectional. Marsha Blackburn was herself a black trans woman. Much of the gay liberation movement's pioneers looked towards the civil rights movement as inspiration and modeling of how to engage in protests. Um, and as for the whole designation of uh, uh, homosexuality as a mental illness, that was, uh, after a massive lobbying campaign, retracted and uh, reclassified in the 1970s and then onwards. Things developed and, you know, got better over time. I'll see that I do some more segments on LGBTQ history, not because it's a specific month of the or time of the year, but because our non-cis heterosexual friends across this country are again beset by forces that want to stamp their existences out. And the better we understand that LGBTQ folks have just as much of a history as us who are boring old heterosexuals, the easier it should be for us to, you know, all get along and accept each other at least, if not support one another against those who seek to exploit us. Because ultimately that is what this has always been about, a distraction for the masses to focus their ire on those less powerful so that the jackasses who run the show can keep on doing what they're doing. Because, well, this is hell after all. <laughs> so uh, I had a niece tell me once, she was like, I, I need to talk to you. Uncle Chuck, this is really, you know, important and I need to have a private conversation with you. And I was like, okay, what's the, what's going on? And she said, I want you to know that I'm bisexual. And she looked at me for a response and I said, well, lucky freaking you. <laughs> well, you just doubled your dating pool. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I wish, I wish. Oh, how, how I wish I was bisexual. That would be so but much... But then people but hate then again, on you. Yeah, but but then again, that would also just make it all the more all the more awkward because, like, how how do you even know? That's it's just like everything, like literally every interaction could potentially be a date. It could be, and that's the other issue with that is I'm legally blind, and it's really hard for me to notice that somebody is trying to hit on me from, like, say, mm. across a room. Uh, an old girlfriend of mine told me that. Uh, she was just a friend of mine before, and she told me that at several parties, I she had purposely hit on me to go out with me, and I was clueless. She was like, you're the dumbest person when it comes to interpersonal relationships. So. I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, you do not need to be legally blind to miss all these things again <laughs> and a, again. That's a very good point, because at, at points they were very much in focus and very close, so I could see them, and I still wasn't picking up on it. Mm -hmm. It's possible that I'm just stupid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we all are, I guess, in, in, yeah. to some degree. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. those words of encouragement there. Sebastian, I really appreciate it. <laughs> All right, enjoy your next. Uh, are you going to be back here uh, to do? You want to select a uh, pass inside the present to play next week, or do you want to do a live one next week? Uh, well, let me think about that. All right, get in contact All with right. Will. Sure. All sure. right, we'll do. Talk to you soon. All right. Sure. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. Kat, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And share with us some more of our listeners' responses. 
This week's question from hell is what superpower do you hope Chuck has after his surgery? Um, on Twitter, we have one response from Josias, which says, the power to read books and articles in his sleep so he can continue his streak of great interviews. Get well soon, Chuck. Oh, wow. That's very nice. Osmosis. I haven't tried that yet. Maybe I'll just put the books underneath my pillow and see if I can learn it that way. It is a very sweet response. <laughs> That's very nice. Any more? Um, yeah. On Facebook, there's seven comments. Okay. Um, let's see. Fabio AJL says the ability to not miss his button. <laughs> hey, I've been getting better at that. <laughs> Um, Matt L says extra limbs. <laughs> Sl S writes the ability to psychically torment billionaires, Henry Kissinger, and other fash into repentance. Go Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> Sl S, by the way, I really appreciate all of the emails and messages that you have sent over the last uh, sixteen months. They are all very truly appreciated. Any more? Yep, I uh, got three more. It looks like. Uh, Pete V says, a giant pile of money. That's a superpower, isn't it? That is a superpower. That's a super, superpower. Uh, Ronaldo says, 2020 vision. <laughs> Best. <laughs> um, and Ray O says, super immunity. Oh, that's awesome. To which Kelly H responds, read this as super immaturity, if that tells you anything about where my head is at. <laughs> and how Kelly H feels about me. <laughs> uh, any on Discord? Um, I don't see any on Discord. Yeah. So uh, thank you all for sending in your answers so far. Again, we will be announcing this week's winner online this week because we are going to be playing some interviews over the next couple of weeks, Red, White, and Blue, 4th of July, patriotic interviews, of course. Also on a very special Patreon podcast Thursday, June 29th, there's a lot of hate going around nowadays. Everybody's talking about it. It's all the rage. But why so much anger, so much fear, so many feelings of being unfairly wronged or by someone or something? Why so little direct, what, little of that hate directed at us here on This Is Hell? I mean, we rarely get any negative feedback about our show, which sucks because it makes for great content. No matter how hard we've tried to provoke the right, the center, and the left— we are equal opportunity player haters. We never get hate mail or get suspended by social media platforms. However, last week we heard from very, very upset people. A libertarian who called our guest a Marxist. And a Marxist who complained our guest was hyper-liberal. The same guest. Both upset due to exaggerated fear, a feeling of being insulted, sparking anger enough to send what could be called hate mail we want to thank them for doing so. Truly appreciated. Also, can you guess which of the three topics we discussed last week caused all the anger? Was it A, a history of Stop Cop City? B, a call for Stop Cop City to embrace chaotic protest? Or C, transgender myths? The only way to find out is to become a Patreon subscriber and listen to our Patreon podcast, on this Thursday's Patreon podcast, Thursday goes live Thursday morning, June 29th at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Also on Patreon, for the second week in a row, we are playing an interview with Daniel Ellsberg, who recently passed away. Last week, we played our 2004 talk with him about his then-just-published memoir, but back in 2000, Daniel was also on the show a year before 9-11, which is something to keep in mind 
when you listen to our conversation about the Pentagon Papers with Daniel Ellsberg from 2000. But wait, there's more. We will also share what the high school class of 2023 thinks of itself, what it thinks of their classmates and underclassmen. Words of advice, nay, words of wisdom that we should all heed, or not, mostly not, all as they were reported in a small, rural, Michigan town's weekly newspaper. Kat, who are this week's upcoming guests here on This Is Hell? What are the interviews that we will be playing? From 70707, July 7th, 2007, Research Director S. Derek Turner on his Center for American Progress, the structural imbalance of political talk radio. Yeah, we don't have people on from the Center for American Progress anymore, but at one time we did, and this was an actually an excellent conversation on the structural imbalance of political talk radio. What else are we playing this week? Um, we wrap up the week with another interview from 70707 with Jeremy Leeming of United or of Americans United for Separation of Church and State who spoke with us about his article, Christian Reconstructionists are trying to take dominion in America and they have powerful friends. Thanks to Kat Jarvanen for producing today. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Cap Tooth radio show podcast and live, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. How would you, dear listener, like to be a producer here on This Is Hell if you can make it to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood and be here from 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at least one day, Monday through Wednesday each week. And believe in what we do here on the show, you too can be part of the crew. We do reward producers for their services which we will discuss if you are interested in the position. You also get a number of perks, including access to a professional studio for you to engage in your own projects, which we will happily promote. If you are interested in joining This Is Hell, email chuck at thisishell.com and tell us a little about yourself and why you like the show so much that you actually want to contribute to the work of doing This Is Hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. In Rotten History, on June 28, 1977, 46 years ago this week, in Lansing, Michigan, the State House of Representatives passed a bill to decriminalize marijuana, making possession of up to an ounce a misdemeanor, punishable by a $100 fine. The bill had been introduced by State Representative Perry Bullard of Ann Arbor, a liberal college town where pot possession was treated as a minor violation and police usually looked the other way. Usually, but not always. And by the time the Reagan era rolled around, the crackdown by police during the war on drugs was truly brutal on Ann Arbor's hippies. Ann Arbor was also known for its annual hash bash, in which thousands of people, mostly students from the University of Michigan, gathered outdoors to openly smoke weed. But on the day after the Michigan House passed Bullard's decriminalization bill on June 29, 1977, 46 years ago this week, there was a motion to reconsider. It had already passed, but all of a sudden they wanted to have a do-over. Representative Matthew McNeely of Detroit rose to speak against the bill, telling a story of his son who had died of a heroin overdose, which has nothing to do with marijuana. As McNeely argued that marijuana had killed his son by leading him to heroin, Another representative from Detroit, Rosetta Ferguson, broke down and cried and had to be helped from the chamber. 
But Ferguson, already known for her vehement opposition to both marijuana and abortion, soon returned to the floor to make an emotional speech of her own, in which she recounted a recent conversation with a local county sheriff who, she said, was horrified by the prospect of pot legalization. Perry Bullard, sponsor of the bill under debate, rose to call Ferguson a liar which she was. After the vote that followed, in which the House killed the decriminalization bill, this time 52 to 47, Rosetta Ferguson got up and ran at Bullard, yelling, you pot smoker, you pot smoker. She punched Bullard with her fist and then pounded him in the face with a heavy glass ashtray until she was restrained by sergeants at arms. Bullard later told reporters that Ferguson was, quote, a victim of our capitalist society and an ignorant person who could only deal with her feelings through violence. For her own part, Ferguson said, I'm not sure what just happened. He called me a liar, and I just saw red, white, and blue. And then I don't know what happened. So she blacked out in a truly American way, because her blackout included (laughs) raging violence. In the end, the anti-weed crowd won in Michigan, and it was never decriminalized. Instead, it was legalized in 2018. 41 years after it had been decriminalized, and that decriminalization was overturned by liars and exaggerators, by violent fearmongers who turned countless lives, ruined countless lives, ruined by a war on drugs and mass incarceration, both of which could have been avoided easily. Now with legalization, corporations have taken over the marijuana industry and all of the people it once supported, those who were the most criminalized and victims of an unjust legal system, are left with one less way to make a living as they watch their former livelihoods be just another contributor to our runaway, racialized inequality that lines the pockets of the wealthiest people. Also in Rotten History, on approximately June 29th, 19, or, sorry, 1861, 162 years ago this week, in Australia, a major effort to explore the continent's interior in search of new grazing land effectively came to an end with the death of its leaders. The Burke and Wills expedition had departed the previous year from Melbourne on Australia's southwestern co- or southeastern coast with the goal of making it to the Gulf of Carpentaria in the north. This meant passing through some 2,000 miles of wild country, most of it unknown to European settlers and much of it desert. And I'm starting to wonder if the story was ever made into a movie because I am riveted. An Irish police officer named Robert O'Hare Burke had been chosen by a government committee as the party's leader, despite his total lack of experience in exploration or navigation. In other words, Burke got the job through wealthy and powerful connections, a job that he should have never had. Burke departed from Melbourne with 19 men, 6 wagons, 23 horses, 27 camels, and 20 tons of supplies, including 50 gallons of rum, and enough food to last two years. The expedition was soon hampered by wagon breakdowns, bad weather, a series of controversial decisions by Burke that led several men, including the expedition's doctor, to angrily resign and turn back. Apparently, they all sucked at Oregon Trail. Burke also fired some men and split them up, uh, slip, or split up those who remained, uh, leaving some behind as set up supply depots for the return trip. After several months, with the help of indigenous guides, they met along the way. Burke his deputy, William John Wills, and two other men almost made it to Australia's northern coast, but their path to the ocean was finally blocked by an impassable swamp. 
Then their overland return trip became a nightmare. Despite periodic help from indigenous people, the explorers never, or sorry, the explorers nearly starved. A support group with whom they had planned to rendezvous failed to arrive at the expected location. To supplement their dwindling provisions, the explorers were reduced to killing and eating their last remaining camels and foraging wild plants they poorly understood, which made them sick. In an argument with one aboriginal group they encountered, Burke lost his temp temper and pulled a gun to fire shots over their heads. The indigenous people panicked. They fled leaving behind a net full of fish from a nearby river. In his attempt to cook the fish, Burke accidentally started a fire that destroyed most of the expedition's remaining supplies. There were unconfirmed reports of indigenous people being quoted saying, Jiminy Crickets! These white people are stupid. By this time, only three starving, exhausted men were left. Burke, Wills, and a man named John King. Burke and Wills soon died of malnutrition after which King encountered a group of indigenous Yandruwanda people who fed him and kept him safe till he was discovered by a search party sent from Melbourne. King was the only surviving member of the full expedition. Fun fact, John King would later become the lead singer of the anarchist post-punk band Gang of Four. Or not, mostly not. Join us for our This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, as well as the opening of this year's edition of This Is Art, up here in the Second Story Studios, just outside our own studio doors, all happening on Saturday, July 22nd at the bars downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. There's going to be art, music, food, a raffle, and we have been getting some fantastic raffle prizes donated to the show. We just got a Stop Cop City t-shirt donated to the show as a raffle prize. If you are a musician or know a musician or appreciate a musician's music that you think will be a perfect fit for the anniversary party, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Share your suggested artist or musician and a sample of their music. And who knows, maybe your recommended musician will be featured at the party. Keep in mind, we have been told we pay musicians far too much. And you don't have to contact us only via email. You can tweet at us. You can send us a message via, via Facebook, or Discord, message us on Patreon, whatever. Also, if you have what you think would make a great raffle prize, or would like to suggest a musical guest to be part of the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, an art show, again, contact us for the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and art show happening Saturday, July 22nd at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Making learning about evil fun since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>